Welcome to What the Hex, your source for Warhammer Underworlds and under 30 tips and tricks you can use to make the perfect deck. I'm your co-host, Davey, and with me I have the efficient engineers of deck building, my co-host, Skylar. How are you, Skylar? Keeping my deck straight down to 32. And Brian, how are you doing? What's up, what's up? I'm good. <laughs> uh, for context, we're recording for the second time on the 11th of February. We are waiting uh, as Valentine's Day approaches for the arrival of the uh, lovelorn warband, the Grave Breakers, uh, who should be arriving, I don't know, uh, hopefully soon because tis the season and uh, I would love to get them in our hands. Our uh, topic today is deck building in the Nemesis Age. Uh, we are uh, ex- we were we were trying to figure out what to cover. You know, we've been covering big events. We've been covering uh, new releases, and it's been a while since we had time for one of these sort of on their own standalone uh, episodes. And uh, what we noticed was uh, with our with our big turnout, Skyler, uh, we were we were up uh, pretty high numbers still there. Yeah, we had 18 people out at League this last week and 22 people being tracked as a part of the League every week right now. That's amazing. Uh, a number of those folks are relatively new, though, and, and as they, you know, some of them start out with just the pure rivals, and as they start to move into Nemesis deck building, uh, we notice that they have questions about that. And we're like, well, you know, this this phenomenon is not unique to our local. There are people who are picking up the game um, and we'll, we see them on our Discord. We'll drop in and say, "Hey, I'm starting the game, or I'm teaching it to somebody." And uh, we decided that we uh, it'd be helpful to uh, make sure that there's a resource out there for folks who maybe need some tips, some help with deck building. Um, and so uh, that's this is put together with that in mind. Um, kind of uh, uh, Brian had our, our original idea for like uh, new players getting getting players on board with Death Gorge, right? So. Um, it's maybe yeah. the same vein as that. Yeah, I can kind of see this as a continuation of that. Now that they're playing, uh, deck building seems to be kind of a stumbling block, especially from Games Workshop perspective, being a war game. This is their one system that includes cards, so that can kind of uh, be unfamiliar for people. And we were realizing at our leagues that it's hard to get that one-on-one time and help guide people through their journey and in uh, through deck building. And so we're helping ourselves and helping you as well. Yeah. Uh, that said, we're going to jump into it just as soon as we get done with our community shout outs. Uh, we've got one of our perennial favorites on here. That's Spent Glory. Uh, I'm bringing it up here. You all know that we love Spent Glory. Uh, there was some great LVO coverage on there, which I really enjoyed reading. Uh, but specifically, the most recent blog post is a, a call for love letters to a, a war band. Uh, why? Basically, it's a it's a call for community input if there is a warband that you think is great then let him know and uh he'll help you kind of construct something i think uh put something together to sing the praises of a warband and we're not here talking about like you know uh i love this warband because it's so powerful uh i think it's i think it's more of a i love this warband because it might be overlooked um he specifically calls out like um underdog certainty of death uh which spent time on elethane early when elethane was really kind of an overlooked warband you know everyone was like ah, i don't know they seem too there's too little going on too fragile too wonky um and uh the idea is uh come talk about a warband and why why you love it 
So yeah, these are those ride or die fans uh, yeah. looking at you, Alex. <laughs> yeah. P- uh, pitch the fun factor. Why do you love this war event? Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I'm lo- looking forward to uh, people taking them up on that. But, uh, anyone else got something they want to uh, shout out real quick? Yeah, I'd like to shout out a YouTube channel that features unedited games, uh, posts extremely frequently. This is a channel called M2 on 2. And these are games where as he plays Underworlds, sets up a camera, sets up some mics and gets games to you. So if you're just looking to watch more games of Underworlds played, this is a great place to do so. Yeah, I finally got a chance to check it out and was uh, very tickled to note that there was a uh, Masks Mournflight deck uh, put together there. So, um, oh uh, <laughs> boy, yeah. Basically, all you got to say is masks, and then I'm in. Uh, hey. I, I'm really interested in how that deck is uh, is going together these days. So, uh, let's see. I also had a uh, had got pinged by uh, someone from the Polish community to uh, try to make sure people are aware of uh, the. The Polish individual team championships uh, is what I have written down. Uh, okay. <laughs> there are nearly 30 folks signed up for it. There's three tickets for Worlds. It is championship format, and it's April 13th and April 14th. Uh, and that is, uh, I would say, I think it's almost safe to say the the uh, one of the one of if not the championship format capital of the world right now is uh there's a high concentration of players there but if you're in the european area or willing to travel there that'd be uh, a great time i think um we we can't be talking about tickets without talking about canada so yep got two events to shout out here starting with the first one uh, may 4th will be the alberta classic held by uh derek cat murder uh, the man who took LVO this year and last. Uh, May 4th is a single day event on a Saturday in Calgary, Alberta, Canada at the Ogre's Den Gaming Club. Don't have specific details. I, I failed to find the event page. That's probably on me. Uh, but yeah, check it out. It will be a world qualifier event. Uh, I don't know how many tickets they have. Yeah. Um, and then another event is a very busy May for Warhammer Underworlds. May 24th through the 26th on the other side of Canada in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada, is the Canadian Tabletop Championship. It's a wargaming event with all the different uh, Games Workshop game systems. I'm sure there will be more as well. But at Warhammer Underworlds will be there, hosted by G Online or Guillaume. Uh, had the pleasure of meeting him at Worlds. Great guy. Uh, it will be a two-day, seven-round Nemesis tournament. It is a world qualifier, and they have three tickets available. Uh, check it out. Ottawa also looks like a great city. <laughs> oh, snap. Uh, speaking of tickets in Canada, GamesCon is also uh, happening June 15th, and that's, um, I believe, Alberta. Um, I would definitely double-check me on that. But GamesCon Canada, June 15th, uh, also a qualifier. Uh, I heard through the grapevine two tickets, one for first and second, but um, for sure they, one for first. They can't keep getting away with this. <laughs> is, that, is that the uh, – there's an event ran by Beard Arm, right? That um, might be it, and yeah. I, that might be it. Um, this is, yeah, GamesCon Canada. 
Edmonton, uh, which is just north of Calgary, June 14th through the 16th. Got it. Well, uh, many opportunities for folks who want to do that. And I'm, I'm sure coverage will be coming out about some of those. Um, but in the meantime, uh, if you're going to go to this. got to get our necks ready for these events. Exactly. Uh, professional segue from Brian there as I was uh, failing to stick the landing. Uh, we are talking to you about deck building. Uh, and before we jumped in, I just wanted to... Uh, have us each maybe talk a little bit about what our personal sort of relationship with deck building is like, what, where does it occupy for you uh, in your headspace with regards to playing Warhammer Underworlds and um, Skylar, I know it's big for you. So why don't you kick us off? Yeah, it's pretty high up there uh, in the enjoyment column for me when it comes to Underworlds. I find that my relationship with Underworlds is in two parts. There's when I'm actively playing, uh, and uh, I love every bit of that. And then there's when I'm away from the table. And when I'm away from the table, uh, that's when deck building really like continues to occupy my thoughts. And uh, it's something I love to tinker with, experiment with. And I think it's uh, where a lot of the creativity uh, gets to come from. And for me... I love thinking about um, the customization you get to do. And, you know, when you're playing and that one objective or card isn't quite working the way that you want it to and thinking through, you know, your pool of options, thinking through what you could plug in. Uh, is it, you know, a gem that you had overlooked before? Does it slot in just perfectly with what you're trying to do? Or, you know, is it um, still uh, acting a problem in that in that spot for you? But ultimately, uh, it's... Uh, quite a bit of the fun for me. Yeah. I, I think it, uh, for me, it's not, I, I don't get quite as much enjoyment out of it. Although I certainly do spend lots of time on it. For me, it is, it's almost like I'm, I'm chasing that moment where I get something put together. You know, you have an idea like, Hey, I think I could make, I don't know. Um, I, as an example from early days, like I think I can make Magor hold objectives work. And it, it's all basing around the fact that, uh, you know, Gartok can't be driven back. So he's a great one to sit on an objective um, or something like that. And then I'm like, okay, will that work? Start putting the things together. And if it, if it comes together uh, in a way that I think might click, having that feeling is like, I cannot wait to get this on the table to see if my theories about what does or doesn't work here actually uh, stand up to reality. Uh, and I will find sometimes that'll happen with more than one warband in a given week. And I, I'll, you know, it might even just have been like, Hey, I'm going to make, this is a warband I want to bring. And then, um, I'd like to bring an alternate in case somebody, I don't know, doesn't want to play Gore Chosen or something like that. And as I'm building that back up, all of a sudden I'm like, Oh my gosh, I think this might work. And then being super excited. I, I love the, uh, sparking give to make me super excited to actually, uh, play on the tabletop. Uh, what about you, Brian? Yeah, coming from a wargaming background, like a lot of the creativity comes in with uh, like an army of assembling, bu building, painting your force. And like that's a lot of uh, upfront expenditure and cost in Underworlds. It's all in the deck. And once you have your warband selected, uh, then it's all in the deck and you can do some really creative things. And I don't have to build and paint the minis. So that's a really <laughs> big relief for me. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it's really fun when somebody does do that off meta pick, something that 
was considered competitively unviable and impresses everybody. Uh, so those are my favorite things. When I'm deck building, um, it is also my greatest source of frustration because those are my choices and I'm dumb. And <laughs> sometimes that card swap is just staring me in the in the face and I'm like, why did I make this swap? This is dumb. Like, why didn't Idiot. I think this yeah. through? Yeah. yeah. So it's my greatest frustration, but it's also just a card swap. Uh, yeah. And so what I strive for is that buttery smooth, like when you're in that flow state and your deck is just singing um, and it just flows naturally, it's not impeding you. So it can be really frustrating, uh, especially initially because you have a learning curve. Um, But I think it's one of the most rewarding aspects of leveling up your game as well. Yeah, you know, I've never thought about it in those terms, but as someone who used to play Warhammer Fantasy and Age of Sigmar a a fair amount, I there if you wanted to experiment you're like well i guess i'm going to get an assemble and paint these five to ten to twenty models just to see if it works out and you're like oh it didn't work out i guess i guess that labor is going on the shelf and here yep. it's like well I'll just sleeve it back up and tuck it away or whatever the case so yep uh but let's get into the meat of it so as a reminder like these are going to be kind of rules of thumb and and some of them are a little more ironclad than others uh some of them little more flexible they are generally done with an idea towards nemesis but they're principles that should apply across championship i I think by the time you are promoting to championship deck building you probably are a little more comfortable with the process in general um but uh worth uh worth bearing in mind nonetheless uh i'm gonna i'm gonna take a guess but when when you are starting you setting out hey i'm going to i i have an idea for a deck um, let me see if I can make it work. Where do you guys like to start? I like to start with the objectives and primarily searches. Mm. Same. So it's worth mentioning just what the basic rules of uh, deck building are for objectives. There must be at least 12. There may be more in your deck and no more than six can be surges. Um, and I think this is probably obvious to everybody, but just in case uh, for all cards, you cannot duplicate a card uh, more than once. So, uh, including if it was from a different printing or something like that, you can have a card that has the exact same effect. Um, but it must have a different name on it. Um, yeah, I kind of want to jump in there. Like speaking of our relationships with, you know, deck building in the game that like having all, all of the, the slots structured, uh, into different silos. So we've got, you know, you can bring six surges, you can bring, um, you know, uh, up to 12 or a minimum of 12 objectives in total. So you're looking at, you know, six plus end phases, and then you're looking at, you know, 20 as a minimum in your power deck with no more gambits than you have upgrades. So generally looking at, you know, around 10 to 10, uh, there with all of that, and then layering in that you can only have one of each that actually makes deck building, uh, so much more approachable for me than other games that I've tried. Like typically, uh, I wouldn't have considered myself a card gamer before, or I wouldn't consider myself a typical card gamer prior to Warhammer Underworlds. I've played quite a few of them, but I often found deck building to be extremely overwhelming in other game systems. Um, I There's multiple copies that you have to consider, like how many copies of a card am I going to bring into a deck? Um, You have so many more cards that you're fitting in from such a larger pool. If you look at something popular like Magic the Gathering, you're looking at, uh, if you're playing 
the um, like standard edition versus something like Commander, which is a whole different ballgame. Uh, you're looking at 60 cards in a deck, and you're trying to figure out if you're bringing four of, three of, two of, one <laughs> of, right. you know, copies of cards. And so uh, I find the deck building in this game to be far more approachable when you, and each choice to be far more impactful as mm. well when you're limited to such a small pool of options as to what can fit within the deck and each card being able to offer that to you in one slot only. Sure. Uh, I think maybe before we jump specifically into Surge's uh, objectives, etc., cetera, uh, there was a mention, we'll, we'll talk... We'll talk some, but there, there's this general principle of a an Underworlds deck is at minimum 32 cards, uh, unless we at some point get a warband that can break those rules, which it might be an interesting way to go about things. But that's that's kind of a that that's a fundamental truth of it, and the general accepted wisdom is that you keep it right at 32. We may talk a little bit about reasons to, you know, whether they're good reasons or not, but reasons to uh, break that rule, but. Can you talk from a, a deck building perspective why why keeping it at thirty two uh, is generally such a good idea? In yeah. a word, efficiency. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, just just think when you're drawing cards, uh, which so if you had to draw only one card, you know, would you rather see um, this favorite card that would help you so much in this situation, or this other card that you kind of crammed into the deck? Mm. And if the answer is very strongly that first card, then that second card is actually just getting in your way of finding that card that you really, really need in that mm. given moment. All right. So bear that in mind uh, as we as we move through some of these different categories. But Brian, you mentioned you start with objectives and you start generally with surges. Skylar, is that your same plan? Yeah, always. Yeah. I, I would say about 95% of the time is true for me. Every so often I'll say like, uh, okay, like this is the suite of, uh, gambits and upgrades that I want to really make sure I include. So let's put those in and now let me see what supports those. But that that is a far and away a much more rare uh, occurrence than um, than the rest. Uh, tell me why surges, guys. Why why is surges the place to start? It's how you win. Uh, <laughs> you get victory points or glory by completing your objectives and uh, not making those work for your game plan just means that you're holding yourself back. Well, uh, so yeah. starting there and then making sure that the rest of your deck supports how you win the game. Mm -hmm. So that's objective specifically. Talk to me about surges, though. Why why surges within the objectives? Because they're you need you're going to want some seed glory. You have these cards uh, called upgrades that are going to cost you something. And if you draw any amount of those in your opening hand and you want access to them during that first round, which you do. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're going to want uh, something to get the ball rolling. So uh, there's two ways to get the ball rolling. One is to start getting bounty uh, get through kills. The other is through your searches. Mm -hmm. And so if you can maximize uh, your surge plan for the game, and by that I mean like make sure that they're scorable early for yourself, you can really kind of start ensuring that you can get the ball rolling mm -hmm. and, and get upgrades up. And yeah. I think fundamentally with this game, we, we talk about uh, the game 
can be won in sort of a snowball fashion, or at least the uh, war bands get going in a snowball fashion, which is to say that uh, as you get glory, it, it's because your your points scored, your glory, are also a resource. So the more points you score, the more resource you have. And uh, having surges that you can score earlier or, or even you know late, but on, on the fly, increase. If you were only scoring end phases in each round, then the most most uh objective cards you could score in a given round would be three but your surges let you bump that to uh some pretty pretty big numbers but you know typically four or five something like that if uh if things are going particularly well right Uh, so on on skylar's point half of your power deck is upgrades which are inaccessible unless you get that seed glory mm, but the mm -hmm. main benefit is what davy was saying in the sense of if you have three objective cards in hand you're only seeing those three for the end phase score uh, but if you have surges, you can see four, five, six, cause you're swapping, you're scoring that surge and moving on to a new card. And mm-hmm. so you get more potential, mm-hmm. uh, to Skylar's point, uh, you either get that seed glory via the surges during the round or via bounty by getting kills, but kills necessitate dice rolling, which are unreliable. Mm-hmm. And so having surges that can score for things you do during the round that aren't dice dependent can be a great way to secure that you're getting to utilize the upgrades that are in your hand or later on in your deck. Sure. Yeah. I think to offset snowballing as Davey was um, uh, mentioning, highlighting here is that like you want to make sure that you have at least some decks or some cards that are surges in your deck that can get you there without those dice rolls. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not wrong to double down on dice rolls in your surges, but if you can give yourself some footing in your surges so that no matter what's going on, you can find that seed glory to get your momentum going. Um, I think that's kind of the best place to start. Yeah. I, uh, cards that you have a whole lot of control over how they they go off um phil uh, who is who is here with us in spirit as he, he's uh, still sorting out some technical issues we should be hearing his voice before too much longer on these episodes again but uh his example here was gale force that's a surge out of the breakneck slaughter deck and it's after your warband has made three attacks doesn't matter if they're successful or not doesn't matter if they killed anyone or not uh so you get to say hey i'm willing to take the risk of this hitting or missing uh but regardless i will progress towards this objective and score it exactly Uh, on that spectrum are other ones that are i would say like a great example of something that has a whole lot more probability uh attached to it would be um break the ice uh which is your warband did the first damage in a round and there's another one that's uh i first first to the punch um beat to the punch maybe yeah, beat to uh, the punch beat to the punch which is maybe a better example here because it's in in the same deck and that's you managed to land the first successful attack that one is one to consider as having sort of two axes of probability one is that it needs to have been you have to roll the successful attack when you have the opportunity uh you have to hopefully have gone first uh or at least arrange the turn order where you have the first chance to take a swing and uh, the other one, which is often not thought about, is that you have to make sure that you have it in hand uh, before the first attack is landed. Because if you draw into it, well, then um, then you all of a sudden can't score it until the next round. So these are things to think about when you're when you're talking about how do how does random chance uh, affect 
uh, in particular surges to a lesser extent and phases. Uh, one of Phil's notes has said, uh, make sure that your surges are reliable at all stages of the game. I think that uh, often can apply in general to most of your objectives. How do you guys feel about this statement here? I um, I agree with it as like something that is worth striving for, but I don't think it's like an end-all be-all rule. Like I think you can um, skew... Uh, an amount of your objectives towards different stages of the game. But mm-hmm. you want to be careful with how many you're skewing to different stages of the game because you can really um, start, uh, like, you can simulate kind of how you're going to draw in a game. And if you are giving yourself so many uh, limitations on when cards can be played, you're increasing the amount of times you're going to receive a really bad hand, like mm-hmm. a really bricked hand where. Uh, either one or none of the cards are reasonably scorable in, in any given moment. But I think if you want to tend surges more towards the beginning of the game, uh, that's where I really like to see uh, their effect. And if I had to pick a card that was either better at the beginning or better at the end, I'd pick better at the beginning in the mm-hmm. surge department mm-hmm. uh, almost every time. Um I would prefer a surge that's reliable throughout for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, surges, uh, number one thing that they're supposed to do for me is get the ball rolling. Yeah. I'd like to give an example of that. I'm going to need Brian's help for a, a name here, but uh, an example of a, a surge that is really easy in the early game compared to the end game on the one side is uh, there's a Reaver's card, Blood for the Blood God. Did you make three? Sur- uh, did you make three charges? Here's one glory. Very easy in the start of the game. They're going right. to charge three times. Uh, often impossible in the late game because you no longer have three guys left alive. The counterpart to that, and Brian, I'm thinking of a Dread Pageant, um, Endless Revel. Yes, uh, lay that down for me real quick. Yeah, it is a surge once all of your surviving friendly fighters have made a move or a charge. So towards the end game, if you only have one or two fighters remaining, you can do that after the first or the second activation, however many activations you need to activate all fighters. Mm-hmm. In round one, uh, you have four fighters, so it's effectively an end phase card. Yeah, although you will still, uh, surge, still surge it and, it and another one. Yeah, but and, you and can build towards that like end phase game plan of the new card sure. if it's an end phase. Sure. Um, but yeah, it's easier late game to mid game. Yeah. And, and I bring it up specifically, though, because it is you can say I will score this in the first round. It is better in the late game. So there, I, I think of those often as sort of counterparts there. Um, yeah. So scorable in all stages of the game is the ideal. Uh, however, in Nemesis, we do have fewer choices. So you have to kind of evaluate it. Uh, yeah. Early game, late game. Sometimes a card that is just buttery smooth late in the game is is worth uh, putting in, uh, and the idea being that uh, I will maybe mulligan it if I see it or or um, draw to it uh, right. later. You just don't want that to be all your surges because exactly. you don't want your backup plan to be like, I'm going to be on the back foot every game. Yeah, and looking at your objectives as a whole, looking at 12, I don't really like to run more than three cards that can't be scored outside of round one. Like that's that's kind of the cap for me, um, and that cap includes like surges, surges and end phase. But surges probably 
would only comprise of one of those three, uh, maybe two at most. Like I, I definitely wouldn't feel comfortable bringing half my surges that, you know, can't be scored during round one. Sure. And, you know, sometimes it, the, the distinction is, is this, is this card difficult to score in round one or is it impossible to score in round one? Um, and the, the latter can sometimes be like, okay, if it's absolutely impossible, then such as if you have a card, that's like all of your fighters be in enemy territory and you have five fighters or more, then you can't make as many activations as would be required unless you have some sort of movement shenanigans or ploys to support it. Yeah. Or, or your opponent helps you out by killing the one person you didn't want to move in there. Uh, but you Which shouldn't you count on your, it. yeah. If, if your plan is your opponent makes a bad decision, then maybe make a new plan. Um, well, let's talk about end phases. Uh, what, what kind of rules of thumb do you guys consider when you are selecting end phases for a deck? Being that end phases take so long to score, I like them to be more than one glory because most surges are one glory. Uh, and I don't want to sit around waiting for one glory. Um, so I tend to try and start at two glory unless a single glory end phase card is extremely reliable. Mm. The, uh, the one glory end phase needs to be like it, things have to be going absolutely terribly for me to not score this because like you said, the, the cost, the opportunity cost of having to wait around for that, uh, and for it to be just one glory uh, is, is a problem, but that's not to say that they're bad. Uh, I know in the, uh, Gore chosen deck I was running, there was the unceasing imperative and, um, unwitting guardians, which are two void cursed thralls, uh, cards that are very easy to score. They only get you one, but I would consider those like, Hey, if I draw these in the opening hand, I know I will be able to score these barring absolute disaster. Like I, I can make these happen. Uh, and sometimes that's, that's worthy, like we we're talking about. This is a, a slower way than surges, but it is a way to get the the ball rolling. Yeah, so I like to think of um, kind of like my glory total or my glory like capability within the objective deck being around fifteen to sixteen glory uh, as an average in Nemesis. So mm-hmm. the more one glory end phases I bring, the uh, lower, I think my deck compares to my opponents as an average. So if I bring more s- single glory cards, then I need to focus a little bit more on denying glory from my opponent. Yes, yeah. As well as um, trying to find, like maybe maybe in that case, I really need to focus on aggro uh, or something like uh, frozen key, uh, chasm key, uh, mm-hmm. to, to make sure that I, I have a little bit of another avenue to get my glory reliably above that average. But ultimately for me, the more one glory cards that I bring starts making me think that I'm playing to counter my opponent more, that I need to pay more attention to what they're doing, deny their scoring, because my one glories that I'm bringing uh, are super reliable for me and aren't going to take as much um, mental gymnastics to make work. I'm applying mm-hmm. those mental gymnastics to denial. I think that's a really good point. I, I think you know it's some of the some of the advantages of a warband like Storm Coven is that they will probably give up two fighters in a game over the course of a game. Uh, but as long as they've timed their inspirations right, they've really only given up two glory worth of bounty if that happens. Uh, 
Meanwhile, I've been running some Grimwatch lately, and I, even on games that are going particularly well, I've probably given up five or six glory worth of bounty just because I have a lot of two wound, one dodge guys, especially early on, that uh, that just kind of collapse as soon as they get brushed up against. And uh, so your need for glory ceiling depends on how much you think you're giving up bounty wise as well. Yeah, that's a great call out. That's one of the reasons why when we were covering the mass deck. Uh, mm-hmm. We were we were talking about how it's a good pairing for uh, hordes uh, as far as offsetting their glory bleed goes. Like mm-hmm. it's not going to pair well with every um, horde out there for sure, but it's worth taking a look at because you've got two, three glory end phases uh, in that deck that you know can really help offset that glory bleed that Davy's describing. Yeah. Uh, we sometimes use the term, I, I know I've heard it, uh, once or twice in the past couple episodes as a, a reach objective. Uh, would you, would you help define that for somebody who is new to deck building? Oh, I always call this a goal card. Oh, uh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so this would be something like reshaped realm, uh, which is four points. Uh, it's in the void care stack. And this is if all surviving fighters are, Void Cursed, right? So this is a card where um, it's a high reward, but it's going to take a lot of effort over the course of a game uh, and a pretty focused game plan to make it happen. But the payout is totally worth it. Uh, Yeah, so that's kind of how I would define a goal card. Uh, And I love building decks around goal cards. Yeah. Uh, Brian, I think one for you is a Paragon of... What's the not indolency? What's the uh, one leader is uh, uh, alive in a um, be it enemy or friendly in a uh, discord deck? In oh yeah, paragon of of paramountcy or triumph of paramountcy. Triumph of paramountcy. Yeah. Yeah. So that's uh, three glory if at the end phase a warband only has their leader alive. Yeah. Uh, and so in a similar way, this gives you something you can be kind of working for the whole game while you're doing other things. Like in your case, it is, am I trying to make sure Vex more stays alive or am I trying to carve everyone away from the enemy leader? Um, and uh, it's got your goal end state sort of situation there. Uh, frequently in the past, we would see these as uh, third end phases. So uh, they're actually pretty rare to see now. Um, if you go back into older war bands from the first one, two, three, maybe even fourth season, uh, you'd see these pretty regularly. Uh, and it would be an objective that could only be scored in the third end phase. Um, I in, in the past, it would be include no more than one. And I think that still holds true. In the past, it would be don't even include one because our mulligan rule is much more punishing. Uh, here, I think you can, you just have to recognize that if you, even if you're including one, you may mulligan into it, or you may draw it alongside some objectives you really want to hold on to. And then you're either discarding it, or it is clogging up your hand for the entire game as you try to carry it all the way to the finish line. Uh, so you should think of these as goal cards that don't have, don't have the flexibility of like, Hey, I, things worked out and I scored it early um which you which you could do with reshape realm I've, I've seen that happen yeah i like to think when i'm including a goal card uh or at least you know something that you're not expecting to score until third uh round like think about uh how you're gonna feel when you only have two cards in your deck mm-hmm. because that's gonna happen to you uh in, in quite a few 
games when you when you run that deck. Um, at, at least probability wise, it's going to happen. For me, it's yeah. like a hundred percent of the time. <laughs> uh, but um, so that's something to think about too. Is you know how reliable are the other slots uh because there's a chance that you're only going to have two and so you're going to need those to be a, a little more reliable for you to make sure that those two slots are flowing as, as well as possible mm-hmm. uh, you know we've talked uh, quite a bit about uh kind of like uh rules of thumb when it comes mm-hmm. to objectives uh but we haven't really covered yet what will lead you towards, you know, picking certain objectives outside of reliability and amount of glory it's going to hand you. Mm, And uh, so when you're trying to decide, is this surge for me? Is this end phase for me? Uh, That can be a little bit more broader picture. Like you want to have in mind your warband's strengths. And so like the first place you're going to get an idea of that is from the fighter cards themselves. Take a look at uh, what abilities you have, what stats you have, um, and, and kind of wrap your head around what the objectives are generally telling you. Usually they'll paint a little bit of a picture that you can marry with what your warband is offering uh, from ability standpoints. So, for example, uh, taking a look at Phil's Starblood Stalkers, they have um, different things pulling them towards objectives. They have this skitter ability or skittish ability that lets them uh, kind of backstep and push for free fighters. So you can push them onto objectives. They have an inspire condition that uh, is looking for them to be on objectives. And they have a few cards uh, that are looking to score on being an objective. So you're, you kind of start to build this idea of, oh, my warband uh, has strengths when it comes to holding objectives. And so you kind of start leaning your game plan that way. And so it's not always the clearest thing, but kind of reading through um, your Inspire, your stats, and uh, even your power cards can help define what you think is capable with your Warband. And then you just go for it. You just try it out. Mm. Yeah, because you just don't want to be fighting against your own Warband. You know, if you have an elite Warband and you choose a bunch of cards that are like, hold three objectives you're playing a very risky game where you're not going to lose it. And it just kind of doesn't uh, flow well with that warband. It's it's susceptible and it's very fragile. Uh, so you might also have a warband that is not necessarily very offensive. They might have a bunch of, you know, uh, inaccurate attacks and only one damage and trying to lean into an aggro build uh, may be, you know, counterintuitive. Sure. That makes sense. Well, we, we mentioned uh, gambits a little bit before we get onto that. I just want to make one last note about objectives and that's, you know, we say keep it to 12. There are occasionally reasons to increase it beyond that. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen a deck in the modern times of that's more than 13. Um, but uh, I think Willie at Worlds had seven end phase, six surges. Uh, Requisin did that in Akon 2022. I would just say if you are doing that, make sure you have a very good reason for doing that. Um, so. I would say so as well. And yeah. one other like rule of thumb I'd like to impart is anytime you can build redundancy mm-hmm. in what your objectives are trying to do, like well, maybe your surges are trying to do the same thing your end phases are doing, that's going to increase the reliability of your deck. And it's going to make it so that when you score a surge, like you're already in a better place, a good place for 
your end phase scoring. Sure. You've made progress towards an end phase that you may not even have seen yet. You know, you, you then may draw into an end phase. Say, oh, good. Uh, I'm already on to the three objectives I need to score this one or whatever the case may be. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Which is a gameplay tip uh, as well is whenever you have a surge in your hand, don't just make a play for the surge, make the best play that you can for to, to meet the surge, but that would set you up best for an incoming end phase that you could draw into. Yeah. Yeah. Make just feel pretty galaxy brain. Yeah. Just uh, calling out a simple example. Uh, touching the realm is hold two objectives and one of them is held by a wizard. And then the other one shape the realm is score this in an end phase. If you hold three or more objectives and one of them is being held by a wizard. If you have both of those in hand and you're scoring shape the realm, you're also scoring touching the realm. Perfect. Yeah. Well, let's talk about power cards here a little bit. And power cards are going to be gambits, which are ploys or gambit spells and upgrades. Um, what, uh, we know that the rule here is that you must have at least as many gambits as you, sorry, you must have at least as many upgrades as you have gambits, uh, and you must have at least 20 cards in here. So the standard is to say 10 gambits, 10 upgrades. Yeah. And to kind of add to that standard, you're drawing in five cards at the beginning of the game, refreshing up to five, you know, rounds two and three. So without some sort of draw support, uh, whether you're taking actions to do it or you have built-in cards that are going to help you draw, then you're really only looking at 15 of those 20 cards. Mm-hmm. And so you really want to make sure that you're keeping what you could draw to be something that you you really hope to see. Because if you increase that, you know, so right now you're not seeing five cards on average in a deck without draw support. But if you increase your power deck, you're looking all of a sudden at six, seven, eight, nine, ten cards you're not sure. going to see. Um, so you want to slim that down so that you're seeing the cards you want to more often. Yeah. Uh, and the bigger the deck is, the the higher the probability is that you can draw into those disastrous opening hands of four or five upgrades and one or zero gambits including even after mulliganing um that the more you have the more possible that becomes exactly um when we're picking these so we've kind of already picked our objectives your your next thing here and this is this is a thing that uh still trips me up sometimes but uh, when you are building that deck, uh, particularly in championship where there's so many more options, but even even in Nemesis, to include a power card in your deck, it's not enough just for that power card to be good, right? You know, some sometimes a power card is so good that you're like, okay, like this is just auto include no matter what my plan is. But it really needs to be not only good, but it needs to contribute to that game plan. Um, because if even if it's great, if you're not scoring your objectives because you should have included something else well that's not really helping you out in the long run yeah so to speak to that a little more i like having two to three pieces that can help me score any given objective and so what that could look like is let's say um elemental blessing uh Mm -hmm. for example is a card that miari purifiers has that says um, they're going to, it's a surge. They're going to score it if they used up one of their, um, uh, the name is escaping me, but one of their very specific tokens to them. Um, Aether tokens. Aether quartz. Oh, Aether, Aether quartz. quartz. Thank it. you. Uh, 
so one of their Aether Quartz tokens while using a elemental ploy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so they have four of those in their deck that they could bring along. And so if I'm running Elemental Blessing, I bring three of them. And I wouldn't really feel comfortable at two. It's an option. I could slim down to two if I really needed reliability in other areas. Um, if I only had the one, it would be straight out. Uh, all yeah. of a sudden, I'm not running Elemental Blessing. Yeah, And that can be something... Uh, flexible against what your war brand can offer. For example, if one of Miari's purifiers had an ability that said, hey, when this fighter spends an Aether Quartz, it counts uh, as if an Aether Quartz was spent towards a ploy. A weird example, but um, that would be one piece towards that three that I feel sure. comfortable with. And all of a sudden, I'm only bringing two cards to pair with that. Yeah. Uh, an example for me was running Void Cursed. I'd include the series that is score this if your enemy has a Void Cursed fighter. And so for me, I would include it. It would be a spread across gambits and upgrades. I would have uh, one upgrade that could help with it and then two gambits that could help trigger it. Uh, and so now I've got three triggers for that card, but split across instead of just gambits or upgrades spread across the two. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, there's a There's a general philosophy here that I want to touch on. And this is when you're picking your gambits, you can pick them to be uh, in the same way that we were talking about the surges that they're reliable across the game. Uh, You can pick them like either this is situationally amazing, but won't always come up or this is always at least pretty good. Uh, And so then whenever I have it, I should be able to do something with it. Uh, the the classic example of the latter is uh, a push. You know, um, if we're sticking to Nemesis, then maybe like slinking in there from Paths of Prophecy, which is push one or push two, if it'll get you on an objective. Uh, that's not going to like instantly kill a fighter or whatever or not that there's necessarily gambits that do that. But that is, it is really hard to find a situation on the board where that is not useful to you in some way. Um, as opposed to uh, taking something that is is a, a bigger payoff, but maybe not always usable. Agree. Yeah, push tech uh, kind of goes to the ancient art of war, Sun Tzu, like he said, flank them and spank them. Uh, pushes <laughs> give you the option and the mobility, more choice, uh, whereas pure offensive power, great strength, or plus one damage on a fighter, mm-hmm. doesn't matter if you can't reach the other fighter. Sure. So something Brian and I both like to do when we're deck building is we like to put the objectives out on the table, uh, the 12 that you've chosen or um, the ones that you're considering. And we like to uh, then put power cards underneath them. So, and you can kind of group the objectives. Hey, these ones are hold these ones. Like, so you kind of like start sectioning off what your deck Mm. is like trying Mm -hmm. to accomplish. And then the power cards that we uh, are running, we like to see them fall into the support of one of those camps. So your objective is kind of at the top as you're looking at your table. And then uh, does this power card support hold? It's a push. Yes, we're going to put that there. Um, And so at the end, if there are cards that don't directly support an objective game plan, are they good enough to, to bring like, are, mm-hmm. do you feel that this is still offering something great that you're going to enjoy because it is not directly uh, working with an objective that uh, you're game planning for. Right. Right. 
Um, I I like that thought process on it. Um, I we are talking about these reliable cards. The flip of that, and I, I bring this up specifically because I think uh, in our local, maybe Jazz and Alex play a little bit to this other uh, thought. Conventional wisdom says make sure it's useful almost all the time. Uh, Jazz and Alex are a little more inclined to you know build with a little bit of a, a high roll or, or a spike. You know, so Jazz would take gambits that she might be trying to cast only on one dice or something like that. Uh, but the payoff on landing those is sometimes so high that it was worth it. And, uh, and I've done that in the past too. There used to be a card that uh, could cancel an enemy gambit on a 50, 50. Um, and you're like, well, that card only works half the time. I think a, 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 maybe a better example would be um, as a championship card, but the uh, daylight robbery, um, very powerful, restricted for good reason, 50, <laughs> 50, 50 to steal an unspent glory from your opponent. Uh, that kind of flies a little bit counter to, uh, the, the idea of like always useful at some point, like it's not useful if they don't have unspent glory, it's less useful late in the game, but when it's, and it's totally useless if you don't roll that 50, 50, but the, the high roll on that is so powerful that you sometimes include that. Um, so uh, there is an example. There are some examples of where you might take something that is uh, situationally powerful, uh, if not always going to go off for you. Agree, Brian. How do how do you feel about um, the like siloing uh, that I was talking about? You know, painting kind of a picture on the table of these cards uh, land uh, in these camps t- to further these game plans. Yeah, so we were deck building recently with Force of Frost, and there were several cards I had laid out with my Warband and Force of Frost requiring a number of spells to have successfully been cast uh, during the phase. And so then, naturally, I needed more spells, because otherwise, you're only relying on the fighter cards for spell attack actions or spell Mm. actions that they may have, Mm -hmm. which you could only do four times in a round if you don't have spell gambit support for that. Mm -hmm. So what we did was we just stacked all the objectives that cared about number of spells cast in one pile and then laid out each spell action either via a upgrade that gives you a spell action, which again is only through those four activations uh, or through spell gambits uh, and laid it out there uh, so that we could make sure like if you have a really high um, number of spells that need to be cast, such as bitter storm and force of frost requires that four spells be successfully cast during a round, you're going to need, you know, you're, you're still rolling dice, so it's unreliable. Just because you're taking that action doesn't mean you're successfully casting it. So you're probably going to try and do use all four activations to get that off unless it just works right away. And then each spell further furthers the chances that your plan is going to go off and you're going to score that card. Sure. Uh, so it just really helps visually to be like, okay, I feel comfortable. There's enough support here. Or maybe I'm leaning even too hard into it. Um, in my case, there wasn't enough. I couldn't get it to work. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it can really help with the visualizing and realizing just how much resources you're attributing to this goal. And if you got, you know, six ploys going to score one card, maybe that card's a little too hard. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh Another rule of thumb, specifically upgrades that Phil kind of wanted to mention, if, if you're in doubt, if you or if you have somehow you have spots to spare and you're not sure, a, a good rule of thumb is that a 
a card is just generally powerful if it's adding to your base stat. So adding a wound, adding a point of damage, adding uh, dice to an attack or defense roll. These cards are typically hard to come by, especially in the nemesis environment. Uh, so if if all else fails, including one of those is often quite a, quite a good choice. Uh, so the one question that I wanted to hit before we leave power cards is uh, something that's kind of unique to recent seasons. That's the salvage rule. This has changed the value of fighter specific cards. You guys, any thoughts about those? Oh, I'm so glad you're bringing this up. Uh, yeah, yeah, I love them now Uh, (laughs) (laughs) because for me, uh, not only, um, do you not have to worry any longer about, Hey, this card is dead. If the spider is dead, but instead like, not only is that worry gone, it's actually transformed the card into a draw in that situation. So mm-hmm. I actually lean more towards trying to find some of these to include in my deck um, just because it, it can help uh, with the reliability of that of seeing as many mm-hmm. of those 20 cards. Uh, so I look for the ones that I think are worthwhile enough uh, to include if I do draw them and so I can use them when that fighter is alive, but also... Uh, try to bring a couple just so that if I do start losing fighters, I can see more of my deck and really um, grab those final cards that I need to secure those final moments. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm all with you. And I think it particularly, I think upgrades in this category are the more important. They're, they're often more common than fighter restricted gambits, but uh, cycling through, especially early game. Although, you know, I would say, I guess, Fighters are more likely to be dead late game and you're more likely to have glory to spend. So, you know, maybe, maybe it doesn't make too big a difference, but yeah. Yeah. Um, don't be scared of them. Um, make sure they're still good, but, uh, they, they're, they're okay to include for sure. Yeah, And remember some of these old war bands have a lot of restricted upgrades. Yeah. Uh, uh yeah. so just by, just because there's no downside to having to salvage them doesn't mean that it's still going to be good to bring like six restricted cards because at the end <laughs> sure. of the game you can salvage all you want, but if all of them are dead, then, yeah. you know, so it's, it's, uh, yeah, not, it's a, it, a balancing act for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I think barring anything else that folks want to say about power cards, I think we're going to move on. I would just uh, say when sorry. you are um, experimenting with your deck, don't be afraid to put 11 and 11 in. Uh, if you're going to a tournament, uh, definitely do your best to cut those down to 10 and 10. But I yeah. think like having, you know, that extra card in each column in your power deck when you're trying to figure out what you like is totally fine. Yeah. What I'll sometimes do is if I have, if it's down to two cards in a particular slot, I'll just say, okay, I'm going to include, you know, whatever, uh, I'm going to include this card, bloody worshiper or something like that. And if I draw it, I will keep in mind, Hey, if I had included the other card, would I be happier about this right now? Right. That's not a, that's not a perfect thing. Cause you're often like playing specifically to the idea that you have one card or the other available to you. But uh, it's it's a way to kind of help make those choices as you're as you're refining things. Another way to do that, because uh, I have I struggle uh, with that. So I've gotten to a point where if I'm playing casually, I'll actually show a card at the beginning of the game and I'll say, "Hey, I don't actually have this card in my deck. I'll actually, maybe I'll have a sticky note in there that just says draw." I was mm-hmm. like, "I just really want to think about 
if I oh, had drawn yeah. this card and sure. my opponent will be like, oh yeah, sure. You know, uh, we're, yeah. like, that's fine. So then when I see that card, I'll put it off to the side and I'll be like, man, what if that had been in my hand? <laughs> that's cool. I, I like that. Uh, uh, one, one last caution I want to point out about gambits is, uh, this is something that's been a recent frustration of mine and it, it's just a risk reward type thing, but, uh, gambits, your ploys, they're the instant use card, um, compared to upgrades and when it's a spell gambit you're rolling dice and it might not go off um and my frustration has been i've been deck building with a lot of spells recently you know six or more spells in my uh power deck and when they don't go off it's like it i did nothing like that that's a lot of opportunity costs there sure um so spells can be risky i just caution against that because there are plenty of ploys that just do the thing automatically and don't require dice to do it. Yeah. Uh, if you include the spell version, make sure you have a reason for including it as a spell version. Yeah. Especially if you're not leaning in spell casting. Yeah. So we've talked a lot of uh, generalized rules here, but for someone to get as far as following some of these rules of thumb, they will have had to, in the nemesis environment, they'll have had to uh, take their, and I think this is typically how people approach it. They have a faction deck and then they say, well, what do I pair this with? Um, so let's talk a little bit about how you choose what deck to pair with. Um, Skylar, you want to uh, launch us on that? Yeah. So when I was describing getting a picture of what objectives to bring, what strengths your warbands have, uh, that's going to be your starting point for a nemesis pairing as well. Um, and then a little familiarity with what nemesis pairings could offer you uh, is kind of the next step. So if you've kind of decided, oh, hey, like I'm going, uh, I want to try an aggro game plan where, you know, I'm going to try to kill as many fighters as I can and get successful attacks and stuff like that. Uh, that's going to immediately inform uh, what nemesis decks might be best to first look at you know, when trying to complement that picture, uh, mm. same, same would go if you were looking for a hold objective game plan or flex, uh, magic casting, like Brian described, um, or, uh, usually, um, we like to talk about control, um, as kind of like a denial game plan. So if you're bringing like very few, um, high scoring cards and you're below that kind of 15, 16 average, maybe you're looking for kind of a control pairing to help you, um, uh, deny what your opponent is doing, give you more tools towards, towards that end. Yeah. So, control is kind of hard to uh, define just looking at a card, but basically it's disruption to your mm -hmm. opponent's game plan. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. Uh, so that's one way to think about it is specifically game plan. Uh, I think the other access to often think about is, what is it my faction deck uh, is lacking? Uh, and for this example, I'm going to lean back on Core Chosen. Uh, Core Chosen has some great end phases. Uh, they have some pretty solid power cards. They, you know, maybe their upgrades are uh, you run out of steam there a little bit. But uh, what they don't have are particularly good surges. There was only four surges in their deck, and three of them need you to kill something. Uh, and so, Core Chosen on top of, or maybe even more important than, you know, helping with a game plan, they're looking for a pairing that can help them with surges. And if they find that, okay, this can help with surges. Does this have a game plan I can work towards? Um, and so that, that can also inform you, like maybe you, maybe you need uh, a pairing that has great upgrades because you don't have 
decent infaction ones. So that's that's kind of the other axis to think about on top of uh, game plan. hundred uh, percent. Yeah. yeah. Um, we uh, and also you talk about matching up with your strategy. You can you can find ones that either match up strongly, like you were talking about, and I think a good example of this was uh, Tooth and Claw pairing up with. Uh, the condemners and uh, for the iron claw, like uh, like Mike, like uh, Sleek's Bull does, and he makes his iron claw where he, he takes, Hey, this is a, a warband that has powerful range one attacks. Let me give him something that makes those even better, give him more dice, give him more damage. Um, or like I said, uh, doing a doing a stopgap, Hey, I'm missing surges, so I'm going to go to Paz of Prophecy with Gore Chosen, uh, to give them some really strong uh, surges to kick things off. Yeah, the Iron Claw, Iron Souls Condemners, and Tooth and Claw is essentially doubling down on what the Warband already does and wants yeah. to do. Yeah. Uh, so it's really good pairing in that sense. But then uh, bear in mind what weaknesses might be lacking, such as mm-hmm. range two or mm-hmm. ranged attacks. Mm-hmm. Uh, really got to lean into the utility there and pushes in order to make your game plan continue to function because uh, it it's doubled down rather than being jack of all trades or a more broadened. Sure. Having a, having a wider stance kind of a thing. Uh, Skylar, as somebody who's built with toxic terrors and I'm thinking specifically your Elethane soul raid, um, the there's, there's a phenomenon that happens particularly with nemesis. uh, That is some of these nemesis decks are, built to do a very particular thing. So here I'm talking like Daring Delvers in the exploration mechanic, uh, Toxic Terrors and their Poison Gambits, Void Cursed Thralls and making people Void Cursed. So a lot of these decks have a particular thing they do uh, and you have to decide also when you're pairing like how much of this deck is really available and how hard do I want to lean into the thing that it does? Um, do you have any thoughts about that kind of process? Yeah, uh, it's case by case. Uh, so like in the example of Soul Raid with Toxic Terrors, that has some like multiple things that mesh together really, really well. Uh, Soul Raid are bringing with them poison cards uh, already. So when you're looking at Toxic Terror, uh, having scoring paths for uh, poison being present, it's like, oh, well, if I can bring some of my own already, like that helps entertain this option more um, and and justify why I might bring this uh, pairing. Uh, another example would be Daring Delvers focuses in on domains uh, being mm. present. And I remember a deck I really enjoyed seeing locally was uh, a Gore Chosen deck that focused really hard on domains and domain scoring. Mm. And so mm. uh, they were able to bring their own facets to that and Daring Delvers was able to complement it. Um, so I think when you can find like compliments to those unique game plans that a deck is bringing, uh, that really um, justifies uh, that pairing and and sees it as uh, a worthwhile thing to explore. Sure, I I think uh, I think we've talked a lot about the idea, and, and again I think this is how most people go about. It. They find a warband they like and then try to find something to pair it with. But you can also reverse this process. What's a deck I really like, and how? how do I find a war band that matches it? Uh, I most specifically did this recently with masks. Yeah. This is oh. me and masks right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a really healthy exercise to help uh, familiarize yourself and evaluate war bands that you normally wouldn't glance at. Yeah. And here we're talking about, you know, in, in, in our review of this, we did some theory 
crafting early on. We're like, well, I think what they want is survivability. They want numbers. They want resurrection. And so what war bands match that sort of thing? Uh, and you can do that with other things, you know, void cursed, what, who, who gets penalized the least by void cursed or perhaps even benefits from it. Okay. And then like, what would, will that work together? Um, and you can back, back your way into some interesting pairings that way too. Well, that is kind of covering most of what we wanted to hit. Uh, what we, for those who are not super familiar, we wanted to make sure that we point you to some resources. If you're wondering, Hey, what should I pair with? What should I connect with my faction deck? Uh, there are some resources out there for you. Um, Skylar, what do you, what do we got that we can point people to? So we can point to, we have a, uh, an episode that covers nemesis pairings, like how you would deck build with them, why you would reach for them. Uh, that's episode 110, uh, making a declaration. Uh, that does exclude passive prophecy forward uh, at the time uh, it just wasn't out yet. Uh, so uh, for more on passive prophecy forward, we do a card by card breakdown uh, on our blog. Uh, that's the mortal realms.com. And uh, that will cover every Nemesis deck released yet. Uh, we got lucky. We started that project uh, right before Gnarlwood broke and right before Nemesis pairings kind of became the new norm. Mm-hmm. So um, those are two kind of in-house resources for you if you're looking on you know, exactly which universal pairings uh, you want to explore for your deck building. Uh, another great place to start. This is a place uh, many enjoy starting, and I know I go there for ideas myself. Uh, the Battle Mallet uh, Nemesis Deck Library. Yeah, yeah. My, my uh, so we've got a laptop that I usually bring with me, and then a older uh, one that we leave at home. Uh, it's kind of shared between a couple of people. My son has uh, one tab for bookmarks, and the only bookmark in it is the Nemesis Deck Library. So. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's fun as like a starting point because he, he'll he go in there and we were running, I think we put together like, a, he really likes the claw pack um, and they had a tooth and claw pairing there and he's at the point now where he's able to like take that, play it and then we sit down and open it up and look and he's like, hey, I want to find a room for this card or, or something like that. Like he's, uh, and so they're great to just pick up and play and they're great as a starting point too. That's a great way to just explore it in general. Like if you don't know how you want to start, but you know, I want to try this warband, you can just pick up a list there, get to playing, and then you start actually feeling out what a lot of this means and can start uh, working like Emmett does there. <laughs> sure. Um, for those decks that we haven't covered on that, making a declaration, let's. Uh, I was thinking we'd maybe just give like a one sentence summary of the others. Uh, to to pair with uh, anything that you can look up on the card by card. Yeah. Uh, Well, I'll kick that off then with Passive Prophecies. Uh, So this is a hold objective focused deck, uh, specifically looking at holding different values uh, at different points in the game and giving you uh, ways to not only get to those positions, but also to alter those values a little bit to meet your scoring needs. that's the relatively main focus uh, of why you would reach for passive prophecy, but there's also some uh, good surges in there as well. Cool. Uh, Brian, do you want to pick one of the remaining three that uh, we haven't covered before? Yeah, I'll take uh, Brickneck Slaughter. The name of the game here is Speed. Uh, 
very strong objectives. It is aggro, uh, largely, uh, stuff like Gale Force and Eager to the Fight, uh, or Eager for the Fight. Uh, really strong objectives uh, help with aggro stuff. The speed, it can get a little uh, tricksy in terms of moving you around, but this deck doesn't require that you come with any prerequisites uh, necessarily. Like It's not like Beastbound Assault where it's looking for specific keywords that will help the deck score. Mm. Uh, Breakneck Slaughter is plug-and-play aggro. Mm. Uh, I'm going to... Well, let's see. Force of Frost, uh, we see it in a lot of different builds, uh, and it almost has a little bit of everything. There is a heavy uh, dose of magic in there, but uh, it has things you can reach for even if you're not really going to do magic sort of thing, and some uh, impressive defensive buffs as well. Yeah, it's um, a very versatile deck. It even gives you the ability to make your Warband a wizard deck. <laughs> right. Uh, and that just leaves one. I'll let you. Okay. Malevolent Masks. Uh, the only bullet point I wrote for this was weirdness. Uh, that's not entirely true, but uh, it is it is kind of true. It's a deck that you're going to... Uh, it's kind of unlike many others. Uh, it does care kind of about holding. There's uh, at least three objectives in there that want you to have uh, be standing on an objective token for one reason or another. Um, but it's, uh, it's a deck that you can reach for if you've got a lot of room to to really work on a particular uh like we were saying like do the thing that a deck wants to do if you have space in your objectives and power cards to take a lot of stuff from one particular deck then this has a lot to offer um and then like we said especially if you are uh have the ability to resurrect have good defense and uh enough bodies to really spread some masks out absolutely you know, another cool resource that's available that recently cropped up for Nemesis pairing uh, is in the Basil Discord, um, which you've likely heard of us talk about before. If you're not already there, it's a great place to discuss the game. Uh, they, WathLab uh, has added, uh, WathLab is the head of the Vassal Discord and an amazing head at that. Um, he has added individualized channels for discussing each of the pairings. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's a, that's a fun place. Uh, if you want to specifically explore a pairing, go see what people have already said about it uh, and go uh, add to the discussion, ask questions um, and things that you're looking to try. Yeah. Well, does anybody have anything else they want to add to the general uh, intro to deck building discussion here before we start to move to the closeout? No, there's an uh, infinite amount of time that we could spend talking about deck building in specific, but this is hopefully something to help get you started and have a path forward. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully a video or uh, uh, episode rather uh, that you can feel comfortable passing on to somebody else uh, who could use a little bit of an assist in the deck building area. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that is going to do it for us. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, there's uh, Twitter or x at at wth cast there's our gmail what the hex cast at gmail.com uh, we've got a lot of discussion happens in our underworlds general uh and that uh will that's a great place to talk we actually had some really good conversations about the 
um, about the Dear Diary episode we released. Some people loved it. Some people it wasn't really for them. And uh, to anyone who who let us know one way or the other, I just want to reiterate that we really appreciate that feedback. Uh, another way to give us feedback is to provide our review on whatever platform you're using. We don't usually ask you for this, but uh, it, it does help us out. So if, uh, if you have a chance right after you do this, hop on, give us a a five star or, or uh, whatever star you, you want, but uh, we'd appreciate that. Uh, there's more of our content at themortalrealms.com. Uh, that includes all the different shows on Art Network. Uh, we have uh, coming up, man, we would love to talk about Grave Breakers because we'd have to we have to have them in hand to, to do that. I was really hoping that they would be around for Valentine's Day. <laughs> it would have been so appropriate. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, grave breakers, please. Um, but uh, we'll see. Um, gentlemen, you know what time it is. And uh, as an aside, uh, I have not been keeping track of the last few episodes of what uh, <laughs> what we did. So hopefully this is not a double dip. But yeah, hit us. Flavor text. Uh, all right. Flavor text. Yep. Uh, the only hint I'm going to give you is that this is an upgrade. Uh, but this will this will help. Um, the quote. Usually. This quote is attributed to Dagok Finkstila. Yes. <clears throat> Hang on, lads. I's almost got it. Oh. <laughs> We're helping people improve the strength of this. Okay. Uh, uh, Brian, I know you've got it. What, what is it? I don't. And, and it's Fink an upgrade Steeler? that no one... What's that? Finkstealer? It is... That's who is by. This is uh, an upgrade that nobody will ever take, probably. Oh, my gosh. This is the one that uh, you have to pass to use, that's isn't it? it? Yeah. Oh, no. What is this called? <laughs> it, is, it is called Finkin' Muscles. So oh. we're, we're helping ah. you develop those Finkin' Muscles. So. <laughs> good, good pick. All right. And then uh, for your recommended listening, we are going with um, one of the legendary Wu-Tang Clan solo career that would be Inspect a Deck and this is Movas and Shakers. So for what this the heck exists? What? <laughs> for, for what the heck so I've funny. been Davey. I've been Skyler. I've been Brian. 